All right, so this morning we want to look at the restoration, how God brought his people uh, back into the land. It's kind of an interesting thing when you think about the big picture of what God did with his people. Uh, you know <coughs> that way over here on the east, we have what two rivers? Right, Euphrates and the Tigris, or the Tigris and Euphrates, okay? okay. In the middle of our, our board, we have the, what, what, what? Sea of Galilee. Right, exactly, right? Very good. Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. And then all the way over here on the left or the west, we have Mediterranean Sea. And so you actually have this pendulum or seesawing going on. I talk about it regularly with the empires, but you also have it going on with God's people. So if you start with Genesis 12, for instance, God draws Abraham out of where? Ur. That's over here. That's Mesopotamia. Right? It takes a little while, but eventually he gets over to Canaan, right? The promised land. But then he quickly goes where? Over here to Egypt. Right? Then he goes back to Canaan. And then over time, there's, there's a little bit of a back and forth, right? Joseph brings the people back to Egypt. Then they come back over here, right, to Canaan. And then you have the monarchy. So you got... Saul, David, and Solomon, and then after the divided kingdom, you have all these other empires that are uh, vying for the land, right? And what ends up happening, the people go into exile, and we end up back where? Where we started. So, it's kind of like the book of Jonah. Jonah's like a repeat. First few chapters, last few chapters, get up, go to Nineveh. Chapter 3, get up, go to Nineveh, because he doesn't do it, right? So, it's almost a whole repeat and a restart. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. And so it's, a, it's an interesting thing uh, of how that happens in the Bible. So we want to specifically look at the, the biblical portion. Last week we spent more time with, with Persia and the background of understanding that. All right, so just a few uh, things to, to look at here. This is just a little recap for us. And this is taken out of... The, um, it's actually from the NIV Quick View Bible, but then they published so many images in uh, Quick, uh, I forget the title, Quick View, Quick Source, something like that. It's a little paperback book, it's like that, that big, but it's got lots of great um, uh, images in it. So, <coughs> the thing on here, though, is you see these groups of people, one, two, three, and we're going to keep coming back to these, okay? And so these are the, the people that are deported. All right, out of Israel. Remember, that there's, th there's three groups that, that head out, right? Right here, we've got Esther's family taken into captivity. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today. you got Jeremiah warning the people of Judah against settling in Egypt. And remember, we talked about that. Also, Jeremiah gets drug over to Egypt. Jehoiachin becomes king of Judah here. The Babylonians capture Jerusalem in what year? 586. 586, good job, okay. Ezekiel is part of the second group of people that goes to Babylon. Zedekiah becomes king of Judah. Ezekiel is prophesying. The Babylonians destroy Jerusalem and the temple. Sorry, that was actually here. I messed you up on that, right? Um, they destroyed it here. They captured it here. Um, and then the third group are, is deported. So that goes with the third deportation there. Remember that there, the three deportations were 605, 597, and 586. All right, so that would be these three here. One, two, three. And then, so the monarchy is over, and then here is where we get into Cyrus and then the, the restoration, where it's cut off 
on my screen, which is the time period for today. Some of the maps and images will be a repeat from last week, and I'll either go more in detail or they'll just be a refresher uh, to get us where we're going. So this is Persia around the year 500 BC. Remember, um, Judah fell in 586, so just a short time after that. And that's that royal road that was built by King who? Darius, right? All right, and they were able to go. It's, it's still pretty impressive. I was talking with um, our teens yesterday about um, Jonah. And so I, I just got sidetracked for a second when I was telling them about what the, the Persians had had done uh, and the fact that uh, they had that road. And for the king's people, I mean, he can get somewhere in seven days in there. That's pretty impressive. So anyway, moving on from there. <coughs> Um, we looked also at the, the world powers at the time, at coming into this, uh, this time period, and the, the Medes and the Persians, okay? And you can see how uh, the Persian area started off just small, just fist-sized over here on, on the right side of the screen. Um, but then they sweep in and, and take over the whole area. <coughs> the primary rulers that we looked at last week and you need to still keep uh, fresh in your mind for today are, are Cyrus. Okay, he's the one that gave the edict that allowed them to go back to the promised land. Uh, Cambyses, he just has a short reign. Darius, okay. Then uh, Xerxes, you have both his Greek and his other name there. And Artaxerxes and then Darius the second. Okay, so <coughs> these are the rulers that We'll be kind of going, going back and forth with as far as um, who we're talking about. With them as well, we looked at the massive expansion that went on and how most of this was during uh, Cyrus's time period, um, but also during uh, Xerxes, Xerxes the first, um, he was able to extend it all the way over into uh, the Grecian area as well. Again, these first uh, sections are our review for us. We looked at this map, and we saw, again, you can see uh, the Royal Road, okay, that, that extends a 1,000-plus miles or so all the way over here into Sardis. We talked about some of the important cities, uh, Pasargadae, uh, Persopolis, uh, Susa right here on the road, um, Ecbatana that was up here, and then Sardis that was all the way over here. And the expansion and how eventually the, the royal city was built in, uh, in Susa, which is where Esther takes place. And so <coughs> we also mentioned how there was also the building project by Darius um, across the canal over here. All right, and then the Cyrus Cylinder, all right, which uh, freed the people. That, that's what you need to remember. Why is the Cyrus Cylinder important? Because it, it documents the fact that not only did the Bible support, but archaeology supports the fact that um, <coughs> the Jews had been given the passage to return. Okay? All right. So, this is a new map, but it's not a new concept. So it goes along with what we talked about last week, and as we get into the actual uh, return that will encompass the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. 
There's the people who come back from from Susa and the surrounding areas. This is a long trek. So if you remember, while the king's horses could make that journey on the, the king's highway there in about seven uh, days, how long did it take a, a regular person? Uh, even more. 90, yes, right? Three months, right? So now they're not going all the way to Sardis, all right? But, but they are coming south instead of continuing on to the northwest. So we're talking somewhere around, you know, like a three-month journey that this is going to take to go from one to the other. So most of us have no idea, um, probably all of us, have no idea what, what that's like. Even if we go on a journey, I mean, it's not that long. I mean, you go to China or Jerusalem today, and it takes you 24 hours on a plane, right? And that's long enough. But, you know, this is more like, uh, you know, the old west. They're going in a caravan across the country, right? And so that's what's going on here. <coughs> and you can see uh, the returns listed. All right. So when we look at the returns, there's a few things that we want to um, remember and ex expand upon here. And so I've tried to color code some of this information. Okay. Um, this chart was made by uh, Gary Schnitzer. I think that's how you say his name. He, he is a professor. He has a phenomenal book called uh, The Torah Story. And um, excellent, excellent book. But this is, this is the chart he made. And I just want to make some, some comments on helping us understand the time period here. So you can see the exiles, okay? Here's the time period that he has listed for them, okay? Now he has some additional at um, 582. He does not have 605 on here. So here's the Edict of Cyrus, 539. All right, we need to get our bearings on this chart because the next chart, I have twice as much data on it. And so before I go to that one, I thought I would give us this one to try to get a little bit of the big picture. Sheshbazar's return, okay, which often goes with Zerubbabel. So normally when people talk about the three returns, they, they put Zerubbabel as, as the first, and then Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, technically, Sheshbazar is listed, but and then Zerubbabel is often packed right in there with him, okay? You're going to have the temple construction, all right? You're going to have Ezra's return over here around 458. Nehemiah's return around 445, and then his second term. So Nehemiah comes, and then he goes back, and then he comes back, all right? Artaxerxes, Darius, and Cyrus are in here. And you can see Cambyses is listed here, as a, and this, remember, is Xerxes as well, okay? Now, the paragraph at the bottom, the Ezra-Nehemiah narrative, all right, presents selected events from within two periods of 20 and 30 years, respectively. All right, so I'll show you a chart in a minute, but as I mentioned last week as well, and I think I showed you a chart then as well, um, really in the middle of Ezra is the book of Esther. And originally Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. So when we talk Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, we're really talking one chunk of time. But when you break that time down, you've got these periods of 20 years, that's the yellow, 30 years, that's the blue, and in between that, they're separated by approximately 60 years. Now, these are all just round numbers, okay? 
So the period of time covered by the story is around 112 years, including the narrated events in 23 years and gaps amounting to 89 years. All right, so we've got chunks of uh, material, but you also have huge gaps in between them. All right, we all on the same page so far? One of the, one of the tricky things, you have a question? Yeah, just the time frame. So the, from the beginning of Ezra to the end of Nehemiah is 112 years, including the gaps? Give or take. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so the, um, one of the confusing things, and even, even once you realize it, it's a reality, if you, do, if you don't know where they are, it, it still doesn't answer some of your questions. But the, the confusing thing is the fact that you, you could have hundreds of years between verse 1 and 2 and between verse 22 and 23 of a passage of Scripture. So once you understand that and you're, and you're wondering about the history, the, the thing is that we often read, this is especially true in the prophets, okay? We read the prophets, and you, you blitzon through it, especially like if you're in my OT survey class and you have to read like the whole book of Isaiah, right, which is a hefty chunk of text, and they may not tell you, Ezekiel tells you much better, but they might not tell you when this is occurring. But it could be 50 years in between the last prophecy and this one. And see, you're reading them as something written down, when in reality, how they occurred was uh, God told the prophet, and the prophet told the king or the people or the priest or whoever, um, you're reading it after the fact in a book that was compiled. Does that make sense? Yeah, so there's these chunks of time that are completely uh, lacking in our mind when we read these. You sit down and you read Ezra, and you're just like, oh, there's Ezra. And until you learn, or someone tells you, you don't realize, well, in the middle of Ezra is Esther. And, and really, Nehemiah is the same, same time period. He continues the story. And there's these big chunks of missing time. So, with that being said, <coughs> the uh, Assyrian... Quick view here. This is from that the same book I mentioned a minute ago. So, the... <coughs> The, the Persians and, and uh, the Assyrians, so the Persians were over here, this Persian Gulf right here. Um, <coughs> if you see right here, Ezra 6.22 is this, it assists the Israelites in rebuilding um, the temple. And so Ezra is going to be one of these guys that comes back from Persia to help in assisting uh, the rebuilding. Assyria, <coughs> which had been the world empire before uh, Persia, so when Persia becomes the world empire, they inherit all of this. And as the people, the big arrow here, as the people are coming back this way, um, <coughs> the, uh, the restoration gets underway. And so uh, this, is, this is just a, a same map. Let me skip it. All right, so here's the one I want to spend some time on. All right, this is going to take us a few minutes. So... During this time period, uh, in the three restorations, um, you have several things that are also going on in the rest of world history. And so, um, Buddha is in India, and the time period for that is, is 560 to 480. So, at the same time that the Jews are coming back home, all right, you've got Buddha from 560 to 480. You've got Confucius in China, 550 to 479. 
Ephesus, you weren't technically, before 78. And in Greece, you've got Socrates, uh, 470 to 399. 470 to 399. So that's the, the time period that we're looking at. Now, so what I want to do now is explain this chart up here for you. All right? This was, I think originally the chart was from uh, Tom Constable's notes. So he's got uh, excellent uh, survey material on every book of the Bible, all for free, online. Just Google it um, or go to sonniclight.org. So if you remove everything that's colored, it's his chart. I added all the colored stuff. So <coughs> Jeremiah had promised as a prophecy from God that the people would be in exile for how long? 70 years, right? Okay, so if we look at our chart, all right, so your 70 years is going to go from from the previous, all right, and I think, I don't know if it was this class or the other class, but we, we looked at uh, how you can figure out the 70, whether it goes by the fall of Jerusalem or the exile time period. Either way, for our point today, the, the point is that's the 70 years, okay? So this pink arrow right here on the left side. Until in 538, Cyrus says, you guys can go back. And that's that Cyrus cylinder that we've shown this weekend, last week, and probably previously. <coughs> so with that, we're going to enter into a couple of things. At the top of the screen, you're going to see the, the books of the Bible. And I've color-coded them. They don't necessarily match the bottom colors, okay? I mean, they do here with Esther. But other than that, there's not a necessary match. Nehemiah kind of matches too. But. So the book of Ezra is 10 chapters. But if, if you look at these gaps, you can see you got 1 to 6 okay, and 7 to 10. I think um, I showed you this map. Oh, it's not that one. La uh, last week as well. Let's see. This one right here. Okay. It's the same thing. Ezra 1 to 6, Ezra 7 to 10, with Esther in the middle. Okay? But going back to the more complex one that I'm trying to explain, <coughs> Esther in the middle, and Nehemiah following right on its heels. Originally, Ezra and Nehemiah was one scroll. So you follow through your dates, and you can see that your returns are in pink at the bottom. First, second, and third returns. You can see that between the first return and the second return, you've got about an 80-year time period. Okay, so the, the first group that goes back, okay, with Zerubbabel or with, um, I forget his name. See, we've, we've classified his co-author with Zerubbabel that the guy I just told you a second ago, um, we don't even uh, remember his name. But it is... Sheshbazar, okay? So, Sheshbazar. So, you're reading Ezra, or Ezra, Nehemiah, or Esther, right? And you're not recognizing that there's an 80-year gap between that. that that's, uh, that's like two generations, right? A generation and a half of people, depending on how you want to count it. So, you're, you're talking 
parents or grandparents had gone by. All right? And this next generation then is, is part of the second return. Almost 50,000 people went when Zerubbabel and the first group went. They go back <coughs> and they're going to focus on rebuilding the temple. All right? And so the, the three returns, you want to coordinate them with three primary things that are being uh, reformed, if you will. Uh, the first is the temple with Zerubbabel. The second is when Ezra goes back and he reforms the people. So uh, I didn't highlight these, but temple is there, uh, people is there. And then when Nehemiah goes back, he rebuilds what? The walls, right? So, and that's not on this chart either. But So those are the three things, temple, people, and walls. Now, going along with that, the idea that when Ezra returns, he is going to reform the people, part of the group, we've got 5,000 listed that come back with Ezra under the second one, a part of that group is a bunch of um, Levites, like 1,500 or so Levites. Not only do the, the Levites uh, work with and in the temple, but they also uh, were part of the leaders of the society that were supposed to help uh, train the people in God's law and how to live out God's law. So if you want a, a reformation, you got to get back to the what? The word of God, right? And you want revival, you want renewal, you got to get back to the word of God and repentance. And so that's what happens um, in Ezra. And there's a couple of things uh, that take place at the end of Ezra that, you know, scholars aren't quite sure if Ezra was just acting on his own or this was a command of God. You know, he told them all to go divorce all their pagan wives. And so you got all these people that are suddenly like all, all divorced, right? So <coughs> 80 years, all right, is, is the big gap between there. Now, <coughs> in, uh, in line with that, you also have the green, all right? So the green time frames, they kind of coincide with this first chart that we showed, 2030-60, right? So that's the 2030-60 from here. Sorry, they're not the same color coding, but this is the 20, the 30, and the 60 in between that, that time period, that big gap. So you come back here, you see you've got these same gaps in time, okay? So from the first return until the temple is completed, it's about 20 years. From the time the temple is completed till the, the second return, it's around 60 years. Esther takes place at the end of that time period. From the time of the second return um, till Nehemiah's second is about another 30 years in that time period. So what happens in that 30 years? Well, the walls rebuilt. Of course, that only takes like 52 days, but um, that's taking place there. That's also, now I'm going to go to the purple circles here. That's also when Malachi is preaching. Malachi, of course, is the last book in the Old Testament, right? In the English setup, at least. Um, <coughs> and, and what is Malachi preaching about? The corruption and the temple. And God's going to shut the doors of the temple. And then what happens next? That's what happens. He shuts the doors of the temple, right? And then we enter into um, what is often called 400 silent years or 400 dark years. And, and then you have the, the New Testament. 
Okay, back up just a little bit um, to in between the first return of the temple completed, Haggai and Zechariah show up in there. Well, why? Because the people had come back and they had stopped working. They had stopped rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple and, and, and the, the focus had changed. They got to focusing on their own houses. And so God sent his, his covenant enforcers, the, the lawmen, the cops in to say, hey, what are you doing? Get back to what's important here. So that's what's taking place there and that's why the prophets show up there when they do. All right. So does that make sense to everybody? All right, so I mean, there's a lot of information packed into this chart. So you got the the three returns. You've even got the number of people that, that show up in the returns. You've got the building times. You got the the gaps that are in there. You got the books of the Bible put up on top. You got the prophets in there, and then you've also got the rulers uh, in the top row. All right. Um. Let's move on then from there. So <coughs> when the people return to rebuild, there, there's several different things that happen, of course, and one of those is the opposition, the opposition that they face to the rebuilding. And we're going to talk about some of that, Tobias, etc., cetera, uh, in a little bit. I've got some archaeological information related to Tobias. But <coughs> the, the Samaritans... We're trying to stop this from taking place. And then over here, uh, the chart here on the left is with all these, these uh, bricks in here for the wall, kind of, if you will. They're rebuilding from uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and giving you the different uh, chapters where, where these take place. So I'm not going to comment much more on that, uh, but you can utilize that from the PowerPoint in your own uh, teaching, preaching, research, uh, etc., <clears throat> Alright, so this here is simply a little diagram of the, the, the temple in the middle and then the walls around Jerusalem that they're trying to rebuild. So, it's kind of interesting. I was um, driving home from my other job yesterday and I was hearing about uh, these fires. So it's interesting because this morning uh, driving in, I heard the, the 528 shut down again because of the fires and the smoke. So uh, what we have is nothing compared to what's going on out west. So they have um, entire, like, ranch, ranches out there are like, I don't know how many miles, like miles and miles and miles of, of fence and whatnot. Um, they were saying, I think... Um, $10,000 per mile of fence is what it costs. Now, because we, we have huge subsidies for farmers in our country with the government, there is, there's government subsidies that will reimburse them up to $200,000. Some of these ranchers have five times that amount of fence. Like you're talking like a million dollars in fence. A million bucks in fence, which they suddenly don't have. Like a million dollars of fence is gone which means that the cattle can't be kept in, right? So um, the, so their problem, I don't want to get sidetracked here, but uh, they have to pay that up front. They can get reimbursed up to 200000 but you still got to pay for it up front. So um, there's a little bit of light there. It's been raining the last few days, so the grass is starting to return. But anyways, these fires just, like, they wiped out everything. 
and uh, they were interviewing this woman who uh, someone called her on the phone and, and said something to her about the fire. So she got in her truck and she headed to go check on her cattle. And what ended up happening is she didn't know the fire was moving so fast. It was moving 60 miles an hour. And so um, she started cutting across her field. Well, no, first she she tried to go out a certain road. The road was blocked. So she started cutting across her field, and her truck got stuck in the dirt. And so then she abandoned her truck, and she's cooking it. She's on the phone this whole time, and someone else is coming in a truck to try to get her. Anyways, they finally got out of there. The, the, uh, the fire was 60 feet behind them. The blacktop was scorched. So her truck and everything was all totaled. Anyways, I said all that because <laughs> walls. That's what triggered that whole thing, walls and fences. So uh, we don't build walls like they did, all right? They build walls out of stone, all right? Um, it's more, uh, what's that? It's more time intensive, um, probably, um, less expensive, because they're mostly getting the stones that are around, all right? It's probably not $10,000 a mile to put them in. But it takes a lot of work. So this is, this is the wall they're building all around here. And if you don't have walls, then your city is what? Yeah, right. There's no fortifications. You're, you know, you're you're game to anybody, and so they got to rebuild the walls, and that is that is what they're they're working on here. Those different gates, by the way, it talks about the gates in the Bible that have been confused. Like those are the different entrance points into the city. It wasn't just one. There, there was multiple, you know, different ones. So, um, under Nehemiah, approximately 443 BC, this here was. Um, part of the uh, the wall structure that they were rebuilding. And so, remember, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar came through in 586, what did he do? He demolished the city. So first off, to get in, you're going to bust down the walls. Second off, I mean, he was so ticked at this point. Remember, he'd already come multiple times. You know, he had th uh, three deportations. Uh, they kept rebelling against him, and this time he's just like, I'm done with you. You know, the, he destroys the temple and the walls and everything. So all that has just been rubble. It's a wasteland. And so the people are, are rebuilding all of that. <coughs> this here image uh, is from uh, Steve Thomason uh, online, some blog or something I, I found it from. And so... What this image will help you do, though, is grasp these books of the Bible and, and what's going on. And so you've got uh, Ezra 1 to 6 and 7 to 10 again. And right in the middle, you've got Esther, okay? And then you've got Nehemiah over here. And so uh, to go in reverse, Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls, 52 days, right? Um, and they face opposition. If you recall the book at all, you know they're working with, um, not shovels, trowels. Trowels in one hand and swords in the other hand, so that's that. Um, you had Ezra that is telling the people about the law to transform them, um, personal reformation, and the foreign wives thing, the part I mentioned with the divorce, is right there in the middle. And then all the way back on our left side, uh, Zerubbabel, as they're rebuilding the temple, that's what this is, um, the project is interrupted, and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah come back and say, let's go get this done. And then at the top, you've got the rulers of, of Persia, all right, so... Pretty cool graphic, putting it, it all together. So the main characters that, that we're looking at are across the top, for the most part, um, the, and they're Persian kings. So you think of this time period, and it's really 
You got the Persian kings, Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, Artaxerxes. You got the people, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, Esther, Mordecai, Haman, eventually. You got the priests, Ezra, the 1500 that he brings back. You got the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. All right, so four Ps. Persians, kings, people, priests, and prophets. Or just Persians. Persians, people, priests, and prophets. Um, and that's what, that's what is uh, taking place. So the tabernacle was the original portable temple, right? And so that's just a picture of it. Um, and then what they're rebuilding is the actual temple, which is much larger. Um, this was what they rebuilt was nothing compared to what Solomon had rebuilt. In fact, if you read the text, you'll see that they bemoan it. It's like, oh, this is nothing compared to what Solomon had. But at least they have a temple back, right? Um, and it's also nothing compared to what Herod did for them. Herod expanded the whole thing. Um, if Darius was a builder and Herod the Great was a massive builder. And so um, that is the, the aspect there, right? So they, they rebuild the, the temple. So just a couple of big ideas from Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. This is all just from the, that quick view that I mentioned to you. So I think the last one for a little bit, as far as our, our chronology goes, is the one I've shown you a couple times already. This is just um, another one of the simpler ones. This is from Tom Constable also, if I'm not mistaken. And the main point here is just to get your, where your prophets are and also to show that you know, Esther's in the middle of that. So Ezra 1 to 6, all right, try to remember this, and Ezra 7 to 10, right in the middle. So, Esther. How does Esther fit into all this? Okay. Well, Esther fits into this because you had two things going on. During the time period of Esther, you have to realize that Esther is part of the group of people that did not go back. So, Esther's the people that stayed. When Cyrus said, you guys can go back, everyone didn't go back. Why? Well, I don't know, because it was nice living there, because they'd never been in Jerusalem anyways, because... Uh, Things were going well for him. You know, any of those reasons. Um, you know, Mordecai, he, he's some kind of scribe working in the in the palace, right? So he's probably got a decent job. Uh, things are probably going all right. He's taking care of Esther. So you got all these different, um, you know, scenarios going on. Uh, Daniel, right? D Daniel's uh, in there with the Persians. He's also working in the, the palace system, right? So, and his three friends. And so while you got people that are over back here and they're dealing with all the aspects of rebuilding, right, and reformation, you've also got God's people over here who, as in every culture, are struggling with um, how, do we, how do we live for God in a, in a pagan culture? How do we uh, serve them well without succumbing to their paganism? And uh, am I even supposed to be here or should I be back in Jerusalem? And what's God doing? Has he forgotten us? Does he care about us? You know, how's all this uh, fit together, play together? So those are some of the questions going on. Also, you have the, uh, 
the big game just taking place. Um, during this time period, Persia is still uh, going at it with Greece. So Persia's over here, Greece is over here, and this is the time period for the movie like 300. Okay, so we've got uh, Xerxes and the Persians and, and the Greeks, and then pretty soon we're going to have Alexander, right? Well, we'll talk about him next week. So the first part of the book doesn't really deal with Haman. Um, that, that comes a, a little bit into the, the book. And <coughs> Esther is important because Esther demonstrates how God still preserves his people that are still in exile. Remember, one of the things we talked about is that God went into exile. Where'd the ark go? Where'd God's presence go? That's what I should have said. Where'd God's presence go? It went into exile, right? It went, he had prophets over there. And so God still cares about his people there, right? And uh, the other thing that this connects with, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie um, One Night with the King, but the opening scene of the movie One Night with the King is a throwback to Saul and how Saul has refused to wipe out the Amalekites. Well, guess what? Hundreds of years later, that disobedience is still haunting his people. Haman is an Agagite. Agagite comes from King Agag of the Amalekites, which come from Amalek, right? And so all these years later, Haman... Okay, because of his hatred, which actually, you know, Mordecai kind of sparked some of this because he wouldn't, you know, bow to him. Um, Haman wants them wiped out. So, of course, we know what happens there. Eventually, you know, Haman gets wiped out and the people are preserved, which is something we'll talk about either next week or the week after, um, plays into the Feast of Purim that is celebrated yearly um, as God has saved his people. So, uh, what else do we have to go with, with Esther here? Well, we have, um, we, as if I was there, the, the harem palace of Xerxes has been uh, excavated. The archaeologists have found this. And so, you know that Esther was only one of many women who was taken. When Queen Vashti refused to go um, show up for the king, which there is, it's interesting because my wife has been reading this lately, so she was asking me some questions about this. There's some scholarly consensus, or opinion at least, that thinks that what he really wanted her to do was, was show up kind of in the nude with her crown on her head um, and kind of be the life of the party. So, you know, she was, she was called to be the playgirl for him and his boys um, at their big celebration. Um, if you read the book of Esther, uh, it's a party book. I mean, read it and see how many days of partying is going on. Uh, there's there are tons. So anyway, I don't know for sure if that is what he wanted to happen or why she refused. But regardless, uh, when he gets back from uh, some of his war uh, expenditures and whatnot, excursions, he rounds up all these girls to find a new queen. And so the harem palace was completely rebuilt by the University of Chicago and now looks much like it did then. So this is impressive confirmation of the historical accuracy of the author of Esther. Um, it's also found in the inscription of Artaxerxes II, which states that the palace of Xerxes was um, destroyed by fire during the reign of Artaxerxes I for um, 
This would mean that within 30 years of the time of Esther, the palace in which she lived would have been destroyed, and then after course of events, a recollection of it would have passed away. So it's difficult to suppose that any uh, late romancer would have had any knowledge of a building which had been destroyed so long before his own time. And so there you have the archaeological evidence relating to um, the, the harem palace of Xerxes. Additionally, as we saw last week, okay, the royal palace of Susa, built by Darius and then used by other kings, including Xerxes, okay? And so that entire uh, complex, and then the soldiers at the top, as we showed you last week, that's just the soldiers in service of the Persian king. So not only the, the harem palace, but you also have information about the palace itself, okay? And then the Persian Wars map that we talked about um, probably briefly last week as well. So Darius I, the father of Xerxes, had tried twice to invade the Greek mainland from Persian bases in western Anatolia and twice was turned back. First by a storm in 492 BC and then at the Battle of Marathon, just 20 miles from Athens in 490 BC. Xerxes' combined land and sea invasion 10 years later was routed at Salamis and so the Greek writers had a field day with the Persian defeat. They would have enjoyed the way that Xerxes was portrayed as uh, in, the, in the book of Esther. So, anyways, as, as he had um, <coughs> uh, lost that battle, we talked about last uh, week, and then he went back home and, and didn't do too much on the, the world scene after that. So... So the Feast of Purim celebrates, as I mentioned, God's deliverance of his people in the time of Esther. The other feast that you might not be very familiar with is the Feast of Dedication, which is found in the book of Maccabees, which we'll talk about that uh, next week. But that is the rededication of the Jerusalem temple cleansed by the Maccabean patriots in 165 B.C. So that's the intertestament time period that we'll discuss next week. Um, if you remember your acronym, a brief pause, God is ready. Syria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Israel, and Rome. And so we're going to touch on Greece, Israel, and a little bit on, on Rome uh, all next week. So the post-exilic feasts of Israel that were added uh, to the primary seven in Scripture, which we're also hopefully going to touch on the seven um, either next week or the week after. <coughs> so to talk a little further about... Um, Esther and, and the Persians and how all this uh, fits together. Let's see. <clears throat> Esther was living in the middle of the Persian era and uh, married Xerxes about 485, 465. It is therefore a fitting symbol for the entire Persian Empire that dates 539 to 333. Three unique words were brought into the Bible for the first time after the Babylonian activity or captivity, of 587 or 86 is what we always say, and during the Persian Empire. So Yehudim, all right, Jew. All right, nobody was ever called a Jew before. All right, this comes in during the time of Esther or the Persian time period. That's the unique word for the Jew in the Bible after the Babylonian captivity in the Persian era. Um, Yehud, which means Judah, okay, so, I don't know if you remember, but im, okay, in Hebrew, im, I am, at the end of a word, that means the plural. Plural. Right? Right. So, 
Yehud or Judah is a unique Persian word found six times in the Bible. Um, Tirshatha, which means governor, is a unique Persian origin word for governors, like Nehemiah, appointed by the Persian kings in the Bible. Um, Peha, <coughs> means governor, is the standard Hebrew title of a governor that dates back to Solomon. However, during the minting of coins during the Persian rule, inscriptions with PHH, okay, where, where does that come from? Right here, Peha, take out the vowels, so you get PHH, right? Remember, no vowels in the original Hebrew. Um, and so we have evidence, which I'm going to show you. I've shown you some of those before about the governor. I'm just going to tie it in with this minting of coins, which was uh, really pushed forward by the Persians. And they eventually allowed the, the people of Israel to mint their own coins as well. people were first called Yehudim or Jews by the Babylonians and the Persians. So literally Yehudim is one of the tribe of Judah. Okay? So say Jew today, but it's one who just ascribes to Judaism and the laws of, of Moses. So the Hebrew uh, Yehudu, okay, a person belonging to the tribe of Judah, is never used this way in the Old Testament. It comes into prominence only after the destruction of the northern kingdom and more specifically after the Babylonian captivity. Thus it is used of an Israelite living in the province of Judah during the Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman periods. Right? It is most frequent in Esther, where it denotes all Israelites. Um, the same usage is found in Daniel. Hence the term takes on a decidedly religious connotation referring to people that follow the Hebrew religion or, or Yahweh. Okay? Abraham was first to be called a Hebrew, and the exiled Hebrews were first to be called Jews. All right, in Genesis 14, 13. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Uh, he was living by the oaks of Mamre, etc. Yehudim is a unique word in the OT, and the Babylonian and Persians used it to refer to the Hebrew population. And the word Jew is common today, but no one in the Bible before the Babylonian captivity was ever called a Jew. And additionally, to throw in, I think it's on my next slide, but it's similar to uh, how the Christians were first called Christians in Antioch. So Jew and Christian were names enemies gave the people of God. The first time any Hebrew called a Jew is after the Babylonian captivity. The first time a Jew was used in Ezra was by the enemies of the Hebrews in a letter to the king of Persia. And in the New Testament, Christian, of course, was, um, they were first called Christians in Antioch by their enemies as well. So <coughs> there are no inscriptions on coins with Jew, but Yehud came to represent both the people and the province. Okay, so again, Y-H-D, take out the vowels, right? So Yehud, Yehudim, all right, um, Jews, Judaism, etc. And so that's where, that's where that's coming from, excuse me. So when you think of the whole Persian Empire as a whole, and now we're talking about this area that they were calling Yehud, okay, where the Yehudim lived, right? We're talking about this little tiny blip over here, which we already told, so it's a little tiny area, right? The whole world fights over. 
So this little tiny peripheral blip right there out of this whole empire that they control. <clears throat> the province itself, okay, right here, Yehud, Judah. As you can see, some of this is very familiar to you, okay? Uh, Moab and Ammon, etc. Um, the Tobias, okay, which reminds you of like Tobias, right? Um, Idumea, which is the Edomites, but it's, it's going to uh, change a little bit to Idumeans, which is going to be King Herod, all right, eventually. So this is, again, the time period of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and what's going on in that time period. So uh, the province of Judah was uh, restricted to the mountainous region in and around Jerusalem, the provincial capital. Seals and coins minted in the region give the province's official name, Yehud. These materials give a good approximation of the borders of the province of Judah. So plotting their distribution reveals the northern limit in the territory of Benjamin, including Mizpah, a southern boundary that extends to Beth Zur, the eastern limit, including Jericho and Engedi, and a western boundary that embraces Gezer and um, Hazusa. So numerous biblical lists containing information about the places and the eternities agree with this distribution. Judah comprised an area covering roughly 900 square miles. Jerusalem was the capital and where the resident governor lived. Um, the list of builders who worked on the walls of Jerusalem under Nehemiah's direction indicates that Judah was further subdivided into districts and half-districts. And scholars debate the precise number of districts, excluding Jerusalem, um, the following cities likely served as district capitals, Bethzur, Mizpah, Beth Hakarim, and Keda. Um, but it's incomplete. There's, there's some debate over that, etc. And so that is the, the province known as Yehud. This is a, a closer view of that with some of these cities marked. Okay, The uh, red square boxes are district capitals, and the, the uh, underlying cities are cities that sent workmen to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem in the days of Nineveh. And so you're reading through scripture sometimes and, and you get to genealogies, uh, skip that. Um, or you get to a list of all these cities, uh, skip that, right? So I know I've done it, right? That's what we do, right? Unless, unless you're doing something related to that. Um, but that's how we're able to put together like a map like that or understand the boundaries of the area of Yehud at this time. It's because of that information that was left to us in Scripture. Or if the entrance is Jesus, the way that we're able to know uh, his backstory, his family tree, if you will, um, it's because of those genealogies that we want to skip. Um, to us, they're not super important. To, to the, the Hebrews, they were very important, particularly as it related to you know, the Messianic promises that <coughs> the line that the Messiah was going to come through. So... Those, those place names are basically how they are able to determine where uh, the boundaries of Yehud um, go to. So, what about the land, okay? The Yehud inscription on coins represent primarily the three-letter symbol uh, for the Persian province of Judah, Yehud, and secondarily the people who became known as the Jews. So after the Persian period ended with Alexander the Great in 333, okay, because then it became the Greek Empire, the Yehud continued to be minted on Hebrew coins until around 200 uh, B.C. So 
in the time period of just 100, 200 years where you would expect to see these coins minted. Eventually, Yehud was replaced with Jerusalem, Y-R-S-L-M, okay, right here in the middle. Again, take out the vowels, right? So it goes from Yehud to Jerusalem. And there's no J, by the way, until much, much later. Um, it's like even today, what, in Spanish, there's, there's no real J, right? Um, right? Am I right? Right? Yeah. So it, there was not for these either. The literary source from the time of the return to Zion do not mention that Jerusalem was called Yehud, but steel impressions found on jar handles from the Persian and Hellenistic period suggest this is the case. It becomes evident that Judean jar handles from the beginning of the 2nd century uh, B.C. bear the inscription Jerusalem, and that came to replace uh, Yehud, as we just mentioned. So, Yehud in the land, Yehud in the Bible. Well, we've already mentioned it's a unique Persian form for Judah. So the standard word in the Old Testament for Judah is Yehuda, which is found actually 819 times. Okay, So the Persian Yehud six times is equivalent to Yehuda, which is 819 times. The Persian Yehud is found only six times and it's during the Persian uh, time period. And I have them listed right here. So now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem, sending it out of Israel. Uh, may it be known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built of hewn stone and timber, etc. Now, let me make a, a quick parallel comment here. So when, when we're looking at um, literary terms and archaeology, and then in OT survey, this comes up with pretty much every book. They're trying to pick out the dating for it. One of the things they look at is uh, internally they look inside the book at the words that are used, and they try to place those words in the time frame where those words existed. So in a case like this, the archaeological evidence, et cetera, demonstrates that this word was used in a certain time period. All right, and so then you look at the book, for instance, as in Nehemiah and in Esther, and okay, well that fits. The word was used here as in as in Nehemiah or, or Esther and so that makes sense. But then let's say you found it in another book. Alright, let's just pick a book. Okay, let's pretend there's ten books, right? So you find it in Genesis and then you're like, well wait a minute. This word was never in use until this time period, like two to four hundred BC. So how did it show up in Genesis? And so that's when you start getting, so scholars say, okay, well, well then that part of Genesis was written in two to four hundred BC. Like that's way late. They added that in later. Or maybe it really was in existence somewhere else. Or maybe the word had another or origin from a different language that was in use back then. So those are the things, okay, the arguments that are going on behind the scenes as to why scholars say, well, this book was really written this time period or this time period, etc. Late, early, etc. Alright, so those are those are the uses of the word there. So Yehud in the, in the Philistines. The name Yehud, again, Persian for Judah, was uh, struck on at least two Philistine quarter shekels. And the initial Yod, um, the first letter of that, the, the, the okay, Yod is just a small letter, kind of like that, okay? Um, and the initial Yod was struck on both quarter shekels 
Um, and some other coins there. So the coins were manufactured in the Philistine weight standards and in design of fabrics resemble the Philistine coins. So there's some aspects. The point here is that the Philistines uh, were minting coins and making coins that also had part of this on it as well. Um, there's a quarter shekel in the middle of the paragraph there. This has special interest because it relates to the Judean weight standard and it carries the name um, Yahweh in four letters along with the Ayin, one of the traditional uh, mint marks of Gaza. This clue suggests that the earliest series of Yehud coins, all of which are either unique or extremely rare, may have been struck at Gaza for use in Judah, and later a mint was established in the Jerusalem area. Um, Gittler and Powell have noted that both generic Philistine and specific coins of Gaza were minted at the same mint. And they also confirm that there is now additional evidence for the increased probability of an initial central mint in Philistia. So, um, you could not mint your coins unless Persia said so. And so, the, the place that the coins were made, okay, were determined by Persia. If you don't know anything about coins, even today the coins made in America are marked as to where they're minted. I don't remember all of them, but if you look at a quarter or something, um, a Z is for uh, Delaware, um, What's that? Denver. Denver. Is that what it is? Uh, What's the other one? Yeah. So if you look at a coin, so obviously, yeah, I didn't look that up before I came, right? Um, but I'm making a parallel point that our coins are still marked as to where they're minted. And so <coughs> they're not minted everywhere. Like they're not minted in Orlando. Like we're, we're, not, we're not making government coins here, as far as I know. Um, and then you have counterfeiters, which they also had back then. I didn't bring any of the counterfeit images, but you should go to Bible.ca and look up some of this stuff, which most of this stuff on this archaeology and the coins from right here and for the rest of um, today's lecture are from Bible.ca. And they will have um, some fake coins, and they will show you on, on the coin like the, the fake part. So I'm not an expert in that area, so I wouldn't be able to tell you the fake part, but that's what they say on their website. So, um, what about Yehud in the ancient Near East? So, the eponym of the tribe of Judah, that means that the, they get that name from the person, so the tribe's named after the person, was born to Jacob as his fourth son by Leah. In Akkadian sources, we find the name uh, for uh, Yehadu, all right, and similar words, similar to Yehud, okay, um, or Yahud from the Persian period, an inscription found in a rock-cut tomb in West Judah that most probably dates back to the 7th or 6th century has the mountains of Judah on it. And so what we have here is there are some different archaeological finds, okay, um, and a growing consensus that the original meaning was geographic, Mount Judah related to um, the mountains of Judah. So... There's other expressions, like from Amos 7.12, Judges 1.16, 1 Samuel. So consequently, the main tribe of this area was called after its territory. The last step was the name Yehuda as the name of a state. And so person, tribe, geographic region, state. Does that make sense? All right. So kind of like person, senator, president, street named after him. In a sense. Are you with me? Right? That's how you get Barack Boulevard, right? If you had um, like Mexico. Yeah. Yeah, great. It's like five minutes away. Um, 
So that is a demonstration that the ancient Near East has evidence of Yehud. So we've got it in uh, connection with uh, the Philistines, with the area of Yehud, with the larger ancient Near East, and all coming back to the Persian minting of coins, which we mentioned that last week, that, that they, um, they, didn't, um, they did not create or originate the minting of coins. They just made it very... Um, What's that? Did they perfect it? Uh, no, they just made it very uh, common. Or they uh, they put it out there. It's kind of like uh, Darwin did not create evolution. Um, but he um, he got it spread everywhere, right? So he's the public face of it. So the Persian governors in Judah. Okay, so the Persian word, Tirshatha, uh, which is governor, is the equivalent to the Hebrew word Peha, and are both applied to the governors during the Persian Empire. Within the Persian era, books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther is commonly used word for the governor. Okay, There's five times in four verses that the unique Persian origin word for governor, okay, Tirshatha, is used to refer to the Persian appointed governor. Twice Nehemiah is called by this. In Ezra and in Nehemiah, it says the governor, literally Tirshatha, a Persian title, told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult the Urim and the Thummim. In Nehemiah 7.70, says, Now some of the heads of the ancestral houses contributed to the work. The governor, literally, Tirshatha, the Persian title, gave from treasury 1,000 barracks of gold. So, and you can see that the next couple, or maybe you can't see them because they're too small, but they're on the uh, PowerPoints if you download them. So, these verses, okay, four different verses, this Persian word, so these are called uh, loan words. Why? Because they, they were loaned or borrowed or taken uh, from another culture. So these are, are words that show up in the scriptures that are from another time period. Well, how did they get there? Well, because God's people spent a whole bunch of time in another land. And because those other lands also had control over this entire area. So then you also have the words that you're familiar with from the book of Daniel, governors and satraps. So the Hebrew word, peach, governor, is equivalent to the Persian of Tirshatha, and are both applied to the governors during the Persian time period. So, in coins and pottery, peha is written as P-H-H. So, and the Hebrew word peha is used 28 times in 27 verses in the Old Testament. It came into use during the time of Solomon and continued down through the Persian period. In Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, the word is used many times for governor, and then the inscriptions, which I'll, I'll show you some of that in a minute. But what about satrap? Okay, so the word peha is satrap. Okay? Or, or Peha, I think I typed that wrong again. Peha, as the title of the governor of a province, it's well known for the Persian period. So Zerubbabel was the first Peha. Um, again, if you read the note carefully, it actually says correcting Cheshbagar, but that's back to our whole thing about how um, it's like we say Darwin and evolution, he wasn't really, just like we say Persians and the coins, they weren't really, we say Zerubbabel, but really uh, Cheshbagar came back first. Um, so how did he talk about him? I've never, until I was reading this, I didn't know who he was. You're right. And we don't. Mind, but who's right. right. Well, he, somebody find out the name? Well, he's just not, uh, he's just not talked about a whole lot. And I mean, Zerubbabel gets more stuff. Maybe Zerubbabel um, actually had more to do with what got done. Remember, SPSU, the, what the scripture tells us.
So you're going to see in a minute, There's uh, we're going to talk about some, some governors that, I mean, they're completely not mentioned in Scripture. You already know, just like Omri. Omri's given very little in Scripture, but in secular history, he is very well known. But for the biblical theological perspective, you know, not that big a deal. So um, even the Persian governor of the entire satrapy on the western side of the Euphrates was called the governor on this side of the river, Nehemiah 3.7. An Elephantine papyrus from the end of the 5th century B.C. mentions uh, Bogahi, the satrap of Judah, and his contemporary Sanballat, satrap of Samaria. Among the finds from the Wadi Delaya, this title is mentioned on the bulla of Sanballat, says the last governor of Samaria during the Persian period, and on papyri from the days of Hananiah the satrap. Seal impressions found on jar handles in Judah featured the names of some of the satraps, such as uh, Yeho, Caesar, and Asher. The coins with the inscription are all the same type. Okay, and so I'll show you some of these in a minute. But some of them have the title of the, the PHH, the Peha, and some do not. And so this is some of the <coughs> different background on the word. All right, and then, and so again, th this here, don't write Pela. That's supposed to be Peha. Right, right there. Peha, right? So, so, coinage actually began in Phrygia, okay, in the seventh century, but it was spread under the commercial initiatives of the Persians, okay. So, as the Persians have the entire empire, right, and then they're doing commerce, right? They're not just controlling places for for the sake of controlling places, right? This is money, right? Where where did they start controlling? Why did they build that big road that went that thousand plus miles? Well, they're controlling all the, the trade. They're taxing everything. I mean, they're making money. That's what it's about. Any job exchange, eh? Not at all. Save some money, right? Around the 4th century B.C., the Persians began to allow Yehud and other provinces to mint their own coins. With this came a degree of local autonomy not previously enjoyed. See, now if you're printing your, your coins, now you have some control of what's going on and controlling your, your, uh, your money and your economy. Previously, they were reliant upon on the Persians. Yehu coins were small, about half the size of a dime, and bear the inscription um, YHD, or Yehud, in Hebrew or Aramaic script. Okay? And so, this I've shown you this one in a previous week, but Yehud on the stone jar handle from Ramah around 390 B.C. Alright. Um, as the there's a bit of a repetition um, here, but as the uh, as you look at the coins and whatnot, coins and pottery from the era often um, confirm details from the scriptures and sometimes give us information about the governors that are not even given to us in, in the Bible. So it's extra biblical materials. So the kings of Persia had appointed a prince or a governor from among their returning Jews. The Bible gives us details about three of the most famous person-appointed governors of Judea, Cheshbazar, Zerubbabel, and Nehemiah. Five of the first eight governors of Judah are known only through archaeology. So if you just read the Bible, okay, which I mean, you don't need this information to be saved in college years, but um, so... Thank God. Yeah, right. Um, but of the eight governors, um, only three of them you know, are, are given to us in Scripture. 
several unique inscriptions from the Persian era and later have been found in coins, pottery, and manuscripts. And so, again, Yehud um, is what you're looking at, derived directly from Jew or Judah. So, <coughs> so I, um, so I got it. I got it right here this time, but I got it wrong there that time. <laughs> it's Peha. Make sure you put it correctly. <laughs> so, the Hebrew word peha equivalent again to the Persian uh, tirshata. So, these the coins. So that, that's a Hezekiah coin up at the top. Okay. Um, just like a, a Francis, right? So it w it was actually um, Yehezekiah. Okay, with with a with a Y in the front of it. Okay, and the second bullet point. Okay governor of Judea. So some coins contain the full inscription naming Hezekiah as the governor. Okay, so that that would be that would be the Hezekiah portion, okay, plus the governor portion. Alright? So Hezekiah the satrap or the governor. Alright? So on the coin if you look over here, okay, that's right there. Hezekiah. And then this is the governor. H-P-H-H. Okay? <coughs> this is another um, Hezekiah coin. Alright? And you can see on this side over here, the inscription is right there. So you got a winged lynx with the animal head facing the left, um, and it says the Hezekiah right there. All right. Uh, yeah. So it actually says Hezekiah in the original language. Yeah, that's what this says. Okay. Who knows that stuff? All right. Um, language experts that uh, spend their lives doing that. God bless them. Yes. Okay. Now, this is not the Hezekiah at the time period when um, Isaiah, Isaiah was, was prophesying. He's long dead. This is, another this is a different one. Hezekiah. Yeah. This is the Hezekiah that was appointed governor by the Persians. Right? Wow. So don't confuse. But he's not in the Bible, is he? Is his name in the Bible? Uh, the three that, w that no. No. Shepshazzar, Zerubbabel, and Nehemiah are the three Eagle, that okay. are in the, in the Bible. All right? So, this is that's the Hezekiah coin. All right. Um, this here is another uh, governor coin. This is the coin of the governor of Samaria named Obadiah. Uh, without the word for governor, it just says Obadiah. And so, that's also from the same um, time period. And then this is a, a pottery jar handle, okay, with uh, the word for, for satrap is in there, all right, for Judah as well. All right, so the, who are the governors? All right, we're just going to go through these 
not my picture. So archaeology has found the jar handle stamp impression um, of, of this one here. So uh, Yehu Ezar, or Ezer, Ezer uh, the governor, the fourth governor, all right, from 490 to 470 BC, jar handle um, stamp. So the, the fourth governor of Judah, 490. So excavations from um, Ramat Rachel in 1930 uncovered um, another 130 seal impressions on jar handles found. Um, so they're up to 400, and about 50 belong to the Iron Age, the rest of the Persian period. So out of the 400, about 350 are related to the, the Persian time period that were found. So he's, he's not mentioned in the Bible. All right. Um, the next one is Shesh Bazar. All right. So this is one that is in the Bible, right? The decree of Cyrus and Ezra 1.1 happened in 539 B.C. <coughs> Five years later, Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel leave for Jerusalem. And so Ezra 1.7.8 says, Also King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Also the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple of Jerusalem, and he brought them to the temple of Babylon. These King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one named Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed governor in Ezra uh, 5.14. <coughs> um, I don't know that I have coins on every single one of these. Uh, Zerubbabel. So... That first one was out of order for some reason. The, the fourth one was out of chronological order for me. So, apologize. Um, Zerubbabel. Okay, so both Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel are said to lay the foundation of the temple. Ezra 5, uh, 16. Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God in Jerusalem. And from then until now, it has been under construction and is yet completed. And then in Ezra 3, 8 to 10, it says in the second year of the coming of the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel and Yeshua... And the rest of their brothers, da, 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 all came from the captivity, began the work, and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and over to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. So, um, when Sheshbazar was the governor, Zerubbabel was a high-ranking official, is the talk for this um, issue of why it says Sheshbazar and Ezra, um, chapter 5, but in 3 it says Zerubbabel. So, they're working together, and um, it's, it makes sense. It's probably maybe how it happened, and so... You got two guys working together, and so we talk about Zerubbabel, and we ignore Sheshbazar, <laughs> um, even even though he was the uh, Persian appointed. So the the next one, picking up after Zerubbabel, um, El Nathan. Archaeologists found two bulletin seals with the the governor's uh, inscription on them. The first has an inscription with belonging to El Nathan, the governor, on it. The second is called the Shelemith seal with the inscription belonging to Shelemith, the maidservant of El Nathan, the governor. So he's not mentioned in the Bible. So this is an example, again, of where the archaeology sheds a light um, on that. And so this one says Shelemith, the wife of El Nathan, in here. And this one says El Nathan, the governor. It's all highlighted. These, again, are all from Bible.ca. Right. A, a wealth of information. You, you'll, you'll be buried. There's so much stuff in there on the website. Um, 
So this is a jar handle stamp impression. Um, uh, Yeho Ezer, the governor, is not mentioned in the Bible either. <coughs> and so that's that one. I think he's in there twice. He, we just talked about him. And then um, Ahzai. Archaeology has an impression of Matt, but I don't have uh, an image of that, obviously. Nehemiah. 445 to 433, and then his second um, when he comes back again around 429 to whenever. And so Ezra arrives in Jerusalem about 458 in the seventh year of Artaxerxes. And then during this time period, you also have Sanballat and Tobiah that oppose Nehemiah and 445 <coughs> Nehemiah 210. And so actually what we have here is this says Sanballat, the satrap of Samaria. And so we have archaeological evidence for Sam Ballot on that one. Now, you know from the story that they faced opposition. And so as they, they faced this opposition, we want to talk a little bit about that. We have some additional evidence relating to that. So uh, Tobiah was the governor of Ammon, high-ranking official appointed by the Persians of the Transjordan um, Ammonites when Nehemiah was rebuilding Jerusalem after returning from Babylonian captivity in 445 BC. So that is uh, not the same as the archaeological site with uh, the Tobias, the grandfather of uh, Hyrcanus, which is related to the Maccabees, which we'll talk about next week. Um, Tobiah was one of two central figures who mocked and harassed and intimidated and opposed the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Um, Nehemiah 2.10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So there's three remarkable phases of uh, Tobias's life. Um, opposition to the building of the temple, uh, the joining in worship, and the, the running of the temple, and then when he surrounded the temple, he crossed the Jordan and built his own temple and palace, which we have um, information on all of that. And so um, he is mentioned elsewhere see, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of uh, Nakoda in Ezra uh, uh, 2.60. Um, he's mentioned in Nehemiah 2.10, 2.19, uh, 4.3. Um, in 4.3 it says, Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break his stone wall down. So he's, he's mocking the, the building. In Nehemiah 4.7, when Sinbalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Aphrodites heard the repair of the walls of Jerusalem was going on and the breaches began to be closed. They were very angry. Uh, Nehemiah 6.1, it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, uh, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of the enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained, no hole in the wall, although at the time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Um, and then 6.12 of Nehemiah, I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. In 6.14, Nehemiah, remember, oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to their works, and also <coughs> Noadiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. And so it continues all through Nehemiah, chapter 6 and 7, 13, um, etc. Uh, towards the end of the book in Nehemiah 13, um, and in verse 8, it was displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Alright? So, this... Uh, Interaction with uh, Tobiah, which obviously you can read in Ezra and, and even more so in, in Nehemiah. And so uh, Tobiah's palace has been uh, 
excavated. The uh, <coughs> Aramaic dedication inscription of Sanyu, uh, <coughs> son of Gashmu, king of Kedar, on a silver bowl from uh, Tel El Mashifta. That's probably not how you say that. Um, anyways, four silver bowls bear Aramaic dedicatory inscriptions to the goddess Han Elah, and one of them reads, That which Hainu, son of Gashmu, king of Kedar, brought <coughs> an offering to Han Elah. So an analysis of both and their inscriptions has led scholars to conclude that Gashmu mentioned in the inscription is the same mentioned in Nehemiah 2.19, 6, etc. So, additional archaeological evidence um, related to uh, Tobiah and to his, his uh, temple. And then, or the palace. And then, um, this is the inscription. Okay, so this is what it says. This is the Hebrew up here, right there, and the yellow is the translation of it. And so you've already seen the same ballot one, but I just all this is related to his palace and temple, um, etc. The what was going on at that time period. The temple. Mm -hmm. And then, <laughs> and then um, this here is the Tobias Temple, and um, down here, around you can see there's a fence around it because they don't want anybody getting near it and touching it now. But this is the the remnants of it in the excavation. And uh, here's the, the lioness and the cub that are on the uh, temple. And then this here is uh, the tomb. And I think, um, I don't know if I have the close-up or not. Oh, this is, yeah, this is the close-up. But you still really can't hardly read it of, of uh, that right there. Archaeology has also found the, the Persian Elephantine Papyrus, which I mentioned just a moment ago, um, with um, uh, Begohi, the satrap of Judah, and Sanballat, the satrap of Samaria, in the text of the Temple Papyri letter. So this is the only reference that we have to him, and uh, we wouldn't even know about him if we had not have the, the Elephantine Papyrus that was found in 1904. So think about that. You're talking about 2,000 years plus after the incident occurred that we're finding uh, evidence of what took place from 2,000 years ago. So archaeology um, definitely reveals some, some pretty cool stuff. And in certain time periods of history, particularly our Western modern history, uh, the enlightened people who you know are too scientific for God, um, it has helped give some credence to the truthfulness and the veracity of scripture. But um, if you know anything about apologists like um, Lee Strobel and others, uh, the truth is that facts alone are not going to do it. You know, Lee Strobel will tell you the story. He had all the facts. Um, he had to prove his belief, you know, and put his faith and trust in Christ. And that's a, a bit different of a matter than just looking at uh, the facts before you. And so... Uh, the next slide here is uh, um, Hezekiah again. 
So after the opposition, okay, the, the last governor, again, was uh, Hezekiah. And he is uh, therefore unique in that he governed Judah, Judea through the transitional period between the Persians and the Greek empires. And there's been two coins found with his name. Uh, we know about him only through the coins that he minted. Some coins uh, contain the full inscription, which I showed you before, and then others um, uh, don't, don't have that. So these are the, the coins again for you. So, and the same basic information. All right, yeah, that's actually it. The next slide is our, oh, our numbers here. So, that kind of concludes uh, the information related to uh, the Persians and the return, the restoration for Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, and Esther. So during the time uh, Esther and Xerxes are taking place, the book of Esther uh, in particular, we see <coughs> the mention of coins. We see there's actually multiple governors that were um, put in place by the, the Persian uh, government. And we see some of the archaeological evidence. We also see what God was doing, both over there and back in the homeland, and that uh, God's game plan was the same as always been, to bring uh, fame to himself, to, to spread his name, etc. So, any questions related to Persia and the Restoration?